You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. This evening we return to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. If you're in a pew Bible, we have now made it to the third page in our Bibles. We come to Genesis 3, verses 8 through 13. God's good, beautiful, indeed very good creation has been corrupted by sin. We saw last time, the fall, the eating of that tree, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the question that now is on a reader's mind a, a, a good reader would come to the end of verse seven and say, what will God do about this sin that has intruded into his very good world? That has come into his garden temple, the place where he dwells with his people. What will God do? And now that full answer will be unpacked through the rest of chapter three, but we'll begin seeing what God does in light of sin. So hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter three. We'll be looking at verses eight through 13. And they, the man and the woman, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. No doubt God's promise that he made to Adam in chapter 2, verse 17, where God said, In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. There's no doubt that this promise is racing through Adam's head. Now that he has sinned against God, he has eaten the tree eating the, the, the fruit of the forbidden tree. What will God do? No doubt he wonders. How will he punish me? What is death like? And so God enters the stage in these few verses in a rather dramatic fashion in order, we'll get to, in order to render judgment for this sin. So we see on the day of judgment, there is no hope for a sinner apart from Christ. On the day of judgment, there is no hope for a sinner apart from Christ. And so we see two things going on in this passage. And the first is the judge's arrival. And the second is the judge's examination. So we have these two, um, two actions we'll consider tonight. The arrival and the examination of the judge. So let's first look at the arrival. This is verse 8. And what we're going to need to do here is unpack some specifics 
Um, I'm going to do something that I really never want to do or like to do. Uh, I'm going to challenge the translation we have in our Bible. Now, before we get there, I want us to say, I, I, I hesitate to do this because our Bibles are phenomenal pieces of work. The English Bible is built upon centuries of incredible scholarship, of linguistic scholarship, of understanding culture, of understanding how the grammar works, and there's new uh, new insights that scholars come to every um, every dozen years or so that are helpful in us uh, more fully and deeply understanding the original languages so that we can put them in English in a way that we can understand, in a way that's helpful. And our English Bibles are a wonderful artifact of some incredible scholarship and work that's been done. So I never want to challenge our Bibles. The English Bibles are tremendous. But tonight, I do want to point out one concern and one preferred translation that I have over what our English Standard Version has. And this is in verse 8. And this is what verse 8 says. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the key translation difference that I'm going to want to make is that phrase, in the cool of the day. Now, this word for cool is the word Hebrew word ruach. You may have heard this word. This is the word for spirit or wind. Um, this is similar in the, in the Greek. There's a similar word that's used for both spirit or wind. So in John 3, when it says the spirit moves wherever he pleases, uh, this is the, the spirit or the wind. It's kind of a double entendre. It's a word that can mean spirit and wind. In the same way, the Hebrew, this word ruach can mean spirit or wind. Now, the traditional understanding of the translation here is that this is a windy part of the day. And so typically it's translated cool. The understanding is that God God was coming, as it were, for an evening walk with Adam and Eve. He was coming in the cool part of the day, the part of the day where it's more windy than other parts. Maybe the sun was beginning to set, and so it's not as hot and blistering, and so that's when God liked to come and um, spend time with Adam and Eve. There's a number of theological concerns I would have with that. Um, But we're looking merely at the the language and the grammar here. And, And in light of this traditional understanding, The sound, we see early in the verse, right? The sound of the Lord God. This sound is traditionally understood as God's footsteps. But I think it's far better to see this sound, this word translated sound, as connected to the sound of judgment that's spoken throughout all of scripture. We read earlier from Isaiah 13, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, the sound of a tumult being on the mountains, Judgment comes with loud, rushing noises. All throughout scripture, there's hardly a time when judgment comes when trumpets or armies or wind or some kind of noise is heard. And so I think this sound here, the sound of the Lord, is the sound of this thunderous judgment on the way. An army is coming to conquer and to bring about justice. And so I think the better translation, as we go back to the Ruach word in this final phrase, in the cool of the day, it's better to translate this as the spirit of the day. And we'll unpack this. But here's here's verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God coming. This is a word for walking, can have a sense of coming or traversing. Coming in the garden as the spirit of the day. The sound of the Lord God coming into the garden as the spirit of the day. 
Again, this cool of the day is a very awkward translation. This is the only place in all of scripture where this word ruach is, it means something other than literally wind or spirits. And seeing it as spirit makes a lot more sense because if we go back to Genesis 1 verse 2, this word is used there. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the waters. And the ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we've already seen the spirit of God who's present in creation, who's present in this before the garden was was formed. We've seen the spirit of God here. And we've also made note of in uh, chapter one, verse two, that that image of the spirit of God hovering over the waters, that word hovering is an important word that ties the spirit's presence to God's redemptive activity. And so we've seen that the spirit here hovering over the waters is likely some cloud-like understanding where we see the cloud, uh, the, the pillar of cloud and the, and, and the pillar of fire leading Israel through the wilderness. That's, there's terminology connecting these ideas in Genesis 1-2 and, and God's redemption of his people out of Egypt through the Exodus and in the wilderness. And so the spirit has a redemptive sense of hovering, of redeeming, of this glory presence of God that is now here to identify this is the glorious king that even we spoke of this morning. From Isaiah 6, we see that glorious king in Genesis 1, chapter 2. The, again, the glory here is coming in Genesis chapter 3. That same glory presence of God has appeared on the scene. That is why he is called God comes as the Spirit, connecting it to the glory imagery. So God comes in judgment as the Spirit, but the Spirit of the day, what does that mean in verse 8? Well, this is a term that would more fully become the day of the Lord later in scripture. So the spirit of the day, this is the spirit of the day of judgment. The Holy Spirit has come on this day of judgment. And I think we can, we can make this connection for at least two reasons already in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And the first is that the days of creation, days one through six, all are connected to judicial pronouncements of God. Notice at the end of every day, there is evening and there is morning, the blank day. And on almost all of these days, before we get to that, that end of the day and the transition to the next day, there's a judicial pronouncement. There's a judgment rendered on each day. And it said, and what is it? God saw that it was good. It's a judicial judgment that God makes of his creation. It is good. It is right. It is orderly. It is in accord with my will. It is all that is moral and right. So God renders a judgment on every day saying, this is good. But even more than that, when God told Adam the prohibition of eating the tree, God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is a day of judgment when you eat. And here we come to Genesis 3 verse 8, and we have the day of judgment here. The spirit of the day. It is the same day that God told Adam, if you eat of the tree on that day, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The day has arrived. The spirit of the day is now on the scene with the sound of the chariots and the sound of the armies who is coming and rushing. And that's why Adam says, I'm afraid. He's hearing all of heaven coming in judgment after him. We have divine judgment coming on the day of the eating of the forbidden fruit. 
coming as the spirit of the glory of God's presence with the loud noise that is overwhelming. So I think that's a far better way to understand Genesis 3, verse 8, than simply God's going on his evening walk with his people in the cool part of the day. No, this is a day of judgment. And the king and the judge of heaven and earth is coming to mete out justice. And just as this appearance of God is loud and dramatic, as is fitting for the occasion, this isn't the only day of the Lord. There's a coming day of the Lord, and all the Old Testament looked forward to it. Using that language, the day of the Lord will be coming. The day of the Lord, they look forward to that day where all sin will be eradicated and where God's people will be vindicated. And of course, Christ tells us he is coming again. And we see, of course, this day of the Lord that we wait for is Christ's second coming or his return. It will be loud. It will be like thunder. It will be like the sound of the trumpets. It will be like the roar of an army where Christ now comes to mete out justice in this world once and for all. And finally, that final day. So how would you respond to this holy God, to this appearing, to this holy, just God coming in judgment, this overwhelming display of power. The judge's arrival. This is not simply when you go to a courtroom and the bailiff comes out and says, all rise and everybody stands up in order for the judge to come to his or her bench and everyone sits down. This is far more profound because this is the judge who is coming. So the judge has arrived, verse 8. And then verses 9 through 13, we have the judge's examination. So the judge comes not really to learn information because this judge is omniscient. He knows all. He knows what Adam and Eve have done. But he comes to reveal it with his questions. He's like a good lawyer here. A lawyer never asks questions that they don't know the answer to. God knows the answer to all of these questions. And so he's coming to to draw this information out. So let's walk through some of these questions. First question is verse nine. He really, God only asked three questions. Verse nine, God says, where are you? He calls to Adam, where are you? Now, clearly God knows where he is, but there's a question underneath the question. And God's really asking Adam, why are you hiding? Why are you not able to commune with me any longer? Why are you afraid? And the answer He gives him in verse 10, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He says, something's changed. I'm now naked and afraid. I can't be with you because I know you're holy and powerful and just. And now I've eaten of this tree you said not to eat of. Of course, he didn't say all of that, but that's what he's getting at. He's saying, I, something has changed. I can't be with you the way I had before because I know you are just. I'm naked and I'm terrified. So God follows up. Verse 11. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Saying, what makes you think that? Why are you, why do you think you're naked? Why is it, why are you afraid? Are you going to acknowledge your sin? In verse 12, we have Adam's response. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit 
of the tree, and I ate. Now, he's, this is not a forthright confession, but he does confess indirectly. Yes, I did eat that tree that you told me not to eat of. Yes, but he blames his wife. He says, the woman, the woman's fault. Don't blame me, blame her. She started it. But even more pernicious than that, he says, the woman that you gave to be with me. Fundamentally here, he's actually blaming God. He's questioning God's goodness. He's questioning God's word. He's questioning God's providence. He's saying, the woman that you gave me, it's her fault and ultimately it's your fault. If I didn't have the woman, I would be just fine right now. He refuses to acknowledge his sin. He refuses to acknowledge it was actually his duty to protect his wife. It was his duty to go ahead and destroy that serpent before it even could say a word to his wife. So he blames the wife and he blames God ultimately. So God, following Adam's, Adam's logic, he now turns to the woman. And so his third question is to the woman. And he says in verse 13, what is this that you've done? What is this you've done? Explain yourself. What happened? And her response, the devil made me do it. Right? The serpent deceived me and I ate. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. You can't blame me. Anybody would have fallen under this temptation. He deceived me. I can't be held responsible. I can't be held accountable. I did it, but it's not my fault. You see, both Adam and Eve fail here to take responsibility. But God is revealing the truth. Both of them admitted to eating of the tree. Both of them said that they did it. Both of them admitted they are guilty. So through these questions, even though they weren't willing to come at it directly themselves, even though they tried to shift the blame to other people, they're exposed fully and completely. Their works are fully exposed to the judge, even by their own admissions. So this judge comes and the judge examines. He arrives and he questions he arrives and he exposes all of their sin. This examination, this examination, uncovering what they have done, this arrival and exposure go hand in hand. The judge comes and the judge reveals. And this is true of Christ's return as well, where all of our works will be exposed. We see in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, Peter writes this, but the day of the Lord, day of the Lord, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. See, day of the Lord, noise, all of these themes recurring. And the heavenly, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All of the works done on earth will be laid bare before God and before others. Every single sin deep embedded, deeply embedded in our hearts Every sin of the thought and the mind will be exposed, will be laid bare. There will be on this day that separation of the sheep and the goats. It's a day where every work of every person, every thought of every person will be exposed just as God so quickly and easily exposed the works of the man and the woman. There will be an examination of sorts 
You've heard maybe a softer version of that. You maybe have heard of evangelism explosion. And they like to, they like to ask a question to get conversations going. And, and the question is this. If God asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? This is this, this evangelism tactic. And you ask this question. God says, if I should, why should I let you into heaven? What's the basis for that? Why do you think you should come into heaven forever and ever? What would you answer? God asked you that question. Why can you, why should you come into heaven? Are you going to minimize sin? Say, I wasn't bad as, the, as bad as the other people. I wasn't a murderer. I didn't steal from people. You think that's sufficient? Or maybe you'll be more like Adam and Eve and blame others. My parents didn't teach me well enough. My parents, they are actually quite cruel. You don't understand them. Or will you take responsibility for your sin? Say, I am a sinner who deserves none of it. So my only hope is Jesus Christ. He has paid for all of my sin. And now with his righteousness, I with boldness can approach your throne forever and ever. Which one will it be? Will you stand upon the merits of Christ? Will you cling to him and claim Christ alone? Or are you going to think you can do it somehow? Minimizing your sin, blaming other people, all of that is simply what Adam and Eve attempted to do. They were exposed and they had no answer for their sin. The short text that we looked at this evening, and there's obviously more to come, more beautiful things, more wonderful things to come, also terrible things. But here we see that there is a terrible arrival. And when I say terrible, I mean should strike terror into all of us. There's a terrible arrival and terrible examination coming. The question for us this evening is, are you prepared? The man and the woman in the garden were not, but in Christ you will be. So as we continue to walk through this, we see over and over our need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. We need his righteousness. Apart from him, there is no hope. We must acknowledge our sin. We must lay ourselves bare before our creator and say, nothing in my hands I cling, or I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let us, with grateful hearts, look to our God in prayer. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.